This is a time we remember those who uh, paid a sacrifice for us and for our families and for the people um, of this country, uh, which is a bold and noble thing to do. And of course, reminds us of the one who gave his life for us, ultimately. And so happy Memorial Day to you. Uh, we have some work to get through today, I think. Two hours. I, it will be good. All right. So I grew up in a pastor's home, and so I heard the gospel, and I, heard, and, I, and, I, and I believed it, and I wanted people to get saved, and so I was this guy who kind of like, when I'd have friends and I'd get them alone, it was like an Amway meeting, right? That was, no offense to those of you who sell Amway, but you know. That's what it was like. Um, so I was, you know, hey, do you know about Jesus and, you know, do this whole thing? I believe people needed to know Jesus. If you were a close friend of mine back then, like, say, junior high, high school, you probably got cornered at some point by me where I was asking you to ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, that probably happened. Like many things, talking to people about Jesus can cause fear. Um, it is just a reality for a lot of people, and I will admit that for myself. It can just be awkward. It can be fearful. But actually talking to people about Jesus usually is not that scary. It's the fear of what might happen. It's a fear of bringing it up that's usually the thing that, frankly, keeps us from doing it as often as we should. But once you actually get into it, because we're a passionate people about Jesus, it's not that scary. It doesn't tend to bring fear. The fear that we feel Generally, the fear of man. We're afraid of people sometimes. We might fear what they think about us. We might fear being awkward, which is like the biggest sin in society, right? Like, don't be awkward, you know? Don't, don't embarrass yourself, especially when you're, say, a young person. Junior high and high school, you gotta be cool. You gotta wear the, I should find some pictures of what I used to wear <laughs> to be cool. Back in the 80s, with like my neon everything and like, not cool, but back then it, it passed. But you're worried about being awkward, right? You're worried about what people will, will think about you. And, and I've noticed that it has stopped our um, motivation to evangelize from being what it could be. I, I would say it's not close to what it could be. It's not close to what it could be. But what has Jesus told us to do? That's the question. It's always the question we've got to ask. We should ask it when we wake up in the morning. What has Jesus told me to do today? Now, out on that wall back there, on the other side of it, we have written the Great Commission. It's right there. We have it there for a reason. Because every time you walk in this building, you can know what Jesus told you to do. Every time. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, Jesus has given you a duty, and he's promised to be with you. The fear thing doesn't make a lot of sense. The fear thing doesn't make a lot of sense. You are literally commanded by Jesus to make disciples of the nations, let alone those in our own city and county. Now, according to the internet, which is always right, as you know, as of 2020, there are 182,792 people in the city of Vancouver. In this city. That's a lot of people. And there are 481,950 people in Clark County. There are almost half a million people in this county. 
That means that if we were to see all the people in Clark County attending a local expression of the body of Christ, you would have 500 churches with 1,000 people each, roughly. That is not the case. We do not have that. We do not have that going on. We're not even close. But here's the thing. God loves all of these people. And Jesus Christ died so that these people could be saved. That's the reality. He died so they could be saved. And he's given you a duty to do. We generally make calling or making disciples. Call, we generally call making disciples. Make calling disciples. We generally call making disciples evangelism. That's the word that we use. We're, we're literally going out to preach the gospel to people and bring them into life with Jesus Christ. Evangelism. That's what we call it. In my experience, at some point in the church, we kind of stopped doing evangelism. We kind of stopped doing evangelism the way that we used to do it. Um, it just became less and less prominent. And that's a strange thing, since one of the identifying characteristics or features of evangelicalism is evangelism. It's like one of the things, right? Evangelicals often by the world are referred to as like a voting block or um, they're defined by like some really rotten things that some people have done, some mistakes people have made who have been in leadership positions, but those have nothing to do with what it means to be an evangelical. Evangelical people, in case you're wondering, are people who believe the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus Christ died for, the, for our sins on the cross and rose again. That's what evangelicals are. There's not, it's not more complicated than that. Evangelicals are people who hold the word of God as the authority of God and who are out trying to get people saved because they believe Jesus died for people's sins. That's what we are. When I say evangelical, that's what I mean. Uh, these days, you would, really wouldn't want to be connected sometimes with what the world calls evangelicals. But evangelism is, in Latin, we'd call it a sine qua non, a without which not. There is no evangelicalism. There is no believing the Bible is the word of God and not evangelizing. If you believe the good news of the gospel and you love people as God has commanded us, then you want to share the gospel, period. We share the gospel because we've been commanded to share the gospel by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel. The fear has got to go. We cannot fear people. This is really important. This is really important because I, I watched over time how we've become more and more and more comfortable sort of being us in, in our group, which is amazing. I love this group. You guys are awesome. You look great. Smell great. It's, it's it's great. It's great. I'm glad you're here. Those of you online probably don't smell as great because you didn't, you know, you're sitting on the couch. <laughs> but the people here, they smell fantastic. Um, but there's a lot of people out there. That, <laughs> I don't know what that's about. There's a lot of people out there who Jesus loves and who we're called to serve. We have a great commission and we have a Lord who is with us. We do not need to be afraid. We need to be on mission. There are many things, by the way, which we can and ought to be doing in this world, including feeding the hungry, uh, visiting the sick, caring for the orphan and the widow and the stranger and the immigrant and the lost and the broken, all those things. Those are all things that are biblical that we're called to do. But most importantly, the most important thing is the duty to share the gospel and make disciples for Jesus Christ. It is the commission that he gave us. That's the deal. So, we need to work through, and, and the reason we're going through this is because this is kind of where we are in Romans, is we've got some practical to this sort of theological argument that we've been going through. But the thing that I think we have to address about evangelism is fear. I'm hoping that it's not 
laziness. I'm hoping that's not apathy. I'm hoping that what it mostly is is just kind of the world has kind of uh, intimidated us into believing that we can't speak about Jesus, that we can't talk about the gospel. But this is what the scripture says. I'm going to read you a number of verses. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You got to think about that. When the Lord is prompting you and there's a person in your life who you're supposed to be connecting with and talking to about Jesus, you need to ask yourself this question when sort of the, oh, it might be awkward. I don't know if I should do it. Maybe I should just let them see the way I live, whatever that is. What can man do to you? What can woman do to you? What can any person do to you when you have the Lord as your helper? Nothing. Galatians 1.10, for I do not, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This is kind of important. If you are seeking to please men, you are not living as a bondservant of Christ. These things seem to be mutually exclusive according to the scripture. This is a little bit longer passage. 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 12. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This is Paul. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. There's a lot there. But what's important here is he's saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel. This is the power of God that has saved us. This is the power of God that has saved us. And if I have to go through some stuff in order to be faithful to preach the gospel, I will do that because I believe, I'm persuaded that he's able to do what he says he's going to do. That my hope will be assured. And of course, then Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's no room for fear of man. There's just no room for it. And just as importantly, there's no time for fear. We don't have time for fear. We are at the end of the age. I, don't, I mean, I don't know, today, tomorrow, the next day, 10 years, I don't know. But it can't be long. You all have seen what's going on in the world. God has promised us a hope and a future. We have eternal life because of what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a pretty big deal. You cannot go home today or any other day after we come to church and we worship God and we study the word. You cannot go home and forget your duty. You cannot go home and say, what's on Netflix What's my latest text? What's on TikTok? What's on whatever? And forget your duty, your call, and your commission. You have a duty. For those of you wondering what God has planned for you, maybe you're in one of those spots in life, 
Like, I don't know what God's got for me. Everything seems like a rut. I just don't know if I'm doing what God wants me to do. I don't know what I'm called to do. Hey, real easy. This is it. This is what he's called you to do. Whatever else he may have for you, whatever else you may do, you are called to bring the gospel to the nations and make disciples of Jesus Christ, period. That is your calling. That is your duty. We are his church. And I refuse to have Jesus find us faithless when he comes for us. I refuse to have Jesus come and have us say that we were too afraid to be awkward. We were too busy or too distracted to make disciples the one thing that he told us that he's empowered us to do and that he's called us to do and that he'll be with us as we do. We can't say that. We got to do what we've been called to do. Now, we've been in the book of Romans for about 10 studies so far. And the last several, we have been working through what I've been calling the gospel argument, right? And this is really from kind of Romans, uh, part, about halfway through Romans 1 through the end of Romans 8, you have this really strong gospel argument. And we've been walking through it. Uh, but here's the thing. The gospel argument is useless if we don't use it. The Bible is practical. The gospel argument isn't just words because words mean stuff. And that stuff is something we have to think about. The gospel argument is an explanation of our only hope in Jesus Christ. It's for us to learn, not just so that we know it. That's great, knowing it, knowing what God has done for us, but it's so that we can put it into practice. Put it into practice. I've personally, myself, in the past, when it comes to evangelism, have tried to avoid using the actual biblical gospel argument as it's laid out through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans. I've actually tried to avoid it many times in my life. For a long time, I thought there were more attractive ways of preaching the gospel. I think a lot of people thought there were more attractive ways of preaching the gospel. I tried everything from just kind of like, I'm going to live my life in the right way, and people are going to see that, and they're going to like come and line up and be like, hey, what's different about you? Tell me about Jesus. I want to get saved. First of all, no one's going to do that because they're like this right? They're on a phone. They're doing whatever. They're too distracted to do that anyway. But the idea that people are going to come and do that as a normal way of evangelism did not work. I also tried things like focusing more on God's grace, but avoiding kind of talking about the truth of why we need his grace. What his grace is necessary for. I would blush when I'd see evangelists like on YouTube or on a video or whatever, like Ray Comfort or Kirk Cameron or these guys who they'd come up and they would kind of be like, hey, you're a sinner. Like, look at all these things that you've done, and you need Jesus. And that way, it's like, well, maybe, maybe not go that way. Like, that seems a little much, a little rude. But the fact is, is that the gospel message, and what we're calling the gospel argument, is about both judgment and grace. What's the point of grace if there has been no judgment? Grace is not needed if there's no sin. When you go out and start preaching, no, I just want to focus on the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. But you don't tell people what they need grace for. Not much of a gospel message. If we could find righteousness through our own actions, if we could be good enough, if we obeyed the law of God, then we wouldn't need Jesus' sacrifice. Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. This is the whole thing. We're here because Jesus rose from the dead, because he died for our sins. If there's not really sin in every person, God actually wasted his time, sent his son to die for nothing. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. So when we preach the gospel, we got to preach the whole gospel. 
The whole first part of this gospel argument we've been going through is that we need Jesus because we're condemned, we're judged, we have done evil, and we're separated ourselves from God. That's the whole first part of it. Now, I want to work through this next section of Romans, and I want to get practical about evangelism, okay? Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, there's ones in the front, or you can use those. If you want to read a paper Bible, it'll also be up here. Look on your phone. I don't know. The Bible's everywhere. You can, that's the awesome thing. Um, but uh, feel free to take one of those home. If you don't have one at home, that's our gift to you. So we just finished the section of the argument where there were these objections. Paul brought up objections. This is a common way of rhetorical argument where you kind of lay out an argument and then you say, this is probably what people are going to say. So he said those things and then he answered those. If you want to go back and watch the last sermon, you can see that part. Uh, but here we have Paul finishing the first part of this argument. Okay? So what we've had in Romans 1, what we've had in Romans 2, and what we've had in the first part of Romans 3 is sort of finishing it off. Romans 3, 9. That's where we're going to start today. This is what he says. Now remember... This, the, the objections that he had were from the Jews. So the first part in chapter 1 was sort of the Gentiles, and then he had the, the second chapter was about the Jews, right? The Gentiles are without excuse. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then it's, oh, and you, Jewish person who judge, you also are condemning yourself because you do the same things, and he goes through that whole thing, right? And so then the, the objections were like, well, what about being a Jew? Isn't that important? And he kind of goes through, yes, you've got the scriptures, you get the promises, the oracles of God, the promises, you, you know, you have all this things. Jesus Christ came through the Jews, all that stuff. But then they're going to add, then he's going to say this question. What then? Are we better than they? Now here he's saying, in terms of our justification, in terms of whether we're justified, aren't we, the Jewish people, better than they, those dirty Gentiles? Not at all, says the scripture. When it comes to justification, there is no difference. For we have previously charged, this is the argument that we just had read, that we previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And if you're thinking, well, I'm not Jewish and I'm not a Greek. Greeks meant everybody else, okay? That's the Gentiles. It's all Greek to Paul. Um, so, the Bible is making clear that as to judgment, the Jewish Christians are no better and no better of a situation and no better standing with God than the Gentile Christians, which would have been quite a shock to them. But this is sort of the finish, finishing of the argument. And then he says this, uh, well, he's making the point that every single person, just so that we're clear, is condemned because they're all under sin, they're all sinners. And then he walks through. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. When you have to repeat yourself, like, because when you say when there's none righteous, that means none righteous. Then he says, no almost expecting an objection again, there is none righteous, but no, not one. Only Jesus is the only person who is righteous. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty or accountable before God. Now, God is clear here. There is no one righteous. Just like, which is, we sing that song, there is no one like you. There is no one like God. He's holy. He's righteous. We're not. He's also a lot of other things. He can make a tree, for instance, which you cannot. 
And then he begins in this little section we just read, what we would call in legal argument, we call it the parade of horribles, right? Where he goes through this list. This is all the problems. These are all the things that you've got. It's the parade of horribles. These are all scriptures from the Old Testament that he's bringing up. Because remember, he's talking to a, a Jewish objector. So he's, he's showing them from the scriptures because they valued the scriptures. They believed the scriptures were true. The Old Testament scriptures. So he goes through all these things from the Old Testament. None righteous, not one, all of this. These are from, these are from different sections of Psalms and Isaiah and so on. And he's going through it and he's, and he's saying, look... The scripture is clear. The idea that the Jews had come to believe, or some of them had come to believe, that by the law they could be justified. Do it right. Have this stuff. You know, do a circumcision, and, and, and I follow this, and I do this feast, and I have this sacrifice, and I do whatever. I'm going to be okay. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Even under your uh, scriptures, even under the law, God was clear. There's none righteous. No one. And then he wraps it up with this, that last verse that we read. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty or accountable before God. Now, this is where he kind of brings back, in my opinion, the Gentiles into the thing. So the Jewish folks, he's like, yeah, you're asking about are we better, are we closer and justified? Nope, you're not. Here's all this stuff from the Old Testament that shows you that. And then he says, we know that whatever the law says, it says those who are under the law. And we have both Jews and Gentiles under the law. We went through it in chapter 1 and 2. The Gentiles were under the law of nature, what God had revealed to them, and what we would call the natural law or general revelation. The Gentiles. The Jews, they were under the law of the scripture, which had been given to them, especially the revelation of God. In both cases, they had broken it and broken it and broken it and broken it. This is why God's wrath was having to be revealed. This is where the condemnation came from. The law of nature by the Gentile, the law of scripture by the Jew, all of them, none of them were righteous. And that's it. The point has been made in the argument here. All are under judgment because of their own sin and breaking of God's law, and no one has an excuse. Now, the next verse says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in this sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, you might notice the word therefore. This is the conclusion. So he's laid out all the premises. No, you're not good. No, you're not good. Nope, not this way either. Nope, that objection doesn't work either. Nope, you're not good. You're all bad. You, the Gentiles, are all bad. And then he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight. He's already laid out that nobody has been good under the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It is the law that shows us that we're sinful. We had a standard, and that standard is in our face condemning us, showing us that we're sinful. Here we have the conclusion. Now we go on to something pretty amazing. The law may be the thing that gives us the knowledge of sin. The law may be the thing that puts us under condemnation. Our sinfulness may be obvious because we know the law. Under the law, we're dead. We're condemned. Now we get this beautiful word for sinners in need of salvation. The beautiful word, but. I was gonna say, now we get this beautiful but, but that sounded like it. <laughs> what you guys thinking about that? Too late. Um, we get this beautiful word, the word but. Romans 3.21. But now, 
the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay? The Old Testament is the law and the prophets. They're, they witness to Jesus throughout the Old Testament. And then Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Whew. What does this mean? You are condemned. You are guilty. You have no excuse. But apart from the law, God has sent his own son. Apart from the law, God has sent his own son. Now he's revealed to us righteousness that comes from another place. It comes from Jesus. All sinners, Jews and Gentile, can receive God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. Right here where it says, for there is no difference, it's the second for is no difference. You're all guilty, there is no difference. You all can be saved through Jesus, and there is no difference. You both have that opportunity, Jew and Gentile. Faith in Jesus Christ, the one who believes, gives pardon for the sin that has been committed. And then in Romans 3, 23 and 24, we have the uh, sum up. So he's given a conclusion that kind of sums it up. And, and honestly, I could have read you these two verses and we could have skipped the whole first thing because they lay it out. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what he laid out in the whole argument here. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And there's the other side. There's the gospel. This right here, 23 and 24. There it is. There it is. The gospel. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You can only be justified because you have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, starting with me. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's free justification, grace, that comes from Jesus Christ, and we get his righteousness imputed to us. So important. The gospel message is that we're dead. We've all sinned. And because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we're all in need of a Savior. And God provided himself, Jesus Christ, to die for us and to rise again, defeating sin and death and hell. That's the gospel. There is no other gospel. There is no other gospel. There is no gospel of, I'm preaching the gospel by... Uh, just living a certain way. There is no gospel by, well, I'll focus on this side and not on that side. There's no other gospel. There's one gospel, and that's it. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the gospel, and that's the gospel that we have to preach, no matter how uncomfortable it may make us or someone else, because that's the truth. And can I tell you something? This has always been true, but I think you will all agree that it's especially true now. The world needs the truth. The world needs the truth, and it needs the truth now. You, all right, see, even this phone's new. The world needs the truth, like, amen. I'll let you guys get your Amber Alerts. Hopefully it's not. There's a guy in a corduroy jacket that we're looking for. <laughs> Lord, we pray for whoever that is. The world needs the truth. That's the best evidence that I could have given you that we have to worry about our children being stolen. It needs the truth now. And let me just tell you something. 
There is no other truth but Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you know what? The people who have the truth are you. You are holding the truth. We hold it in earthen vessels, jars of clay, right? These bodies of death. My wife and I went for a run yesterday. <laughs> a run, okay? More like an 80-year-old person's shuffle. I, I can't even do it. My legs hurt now, okay? The body's not where it was. It's not where it was. I hold this in jars of clay, but I have the truth. You have the truth, and the world needs the truth. We can't just come in here and talk about it and be like, yeah, yeah, the truth. We should do that, but then what are we supposed to do? Get out there and preach it and bring people in. We're commanded to preach the gospel, the only gospel that there is to make disciples for Jesus Christ. We are all living examples of God's grace. Me first. Disaster, sinful, wicked, selfish, self-centered, immoral, and God save me. I am an example, a unbelievable example of the grace of God. How can I not share that? The problem is this. Being harsh or perceived as judgmental or condemning is now the world's biggest sin. It's the biggest sin you can do. If you can be harsh or judgmental or condemning, you're canceled. That's, forget it. Like, that's happening. You're, you're done. Everyone thinks that, oh, oh, how can you be so harsh? How can you be so condemning? How can you be so judgmental? The world has scared Christ's followers. They've scared us off from preaching the gospel the way the Bible preaches it because we don't want to be too harsh or judgmental or condemning. That's a problem. Paul wasn't scared. And when he did it, it wasn't just, oh, you're so harsh and condemning that I might cancel you on Twitter. They threw rocks at his head. They beat him and put him in prison. Eventually, they killed him. What do you have to face? This is the word of God. We're not being harsh or condemning or judgment. Trust me. I'm a sinner. Y'all are sinners. You, you're struggling with things right now. I'm struggling with things right now. I'm trying to become more like Jesus. You're trying to become more like Jesus. There's no condemnation here. But there is the gospel. I do know the only way out of that. And that's Jesus. It's not condemning and judgmental to tell people the truth that the Bible has laid out. This is the word of God. It is the truth. It is that truth that showed me my sin and then Jesus saved me. It is that truth that will show your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers, your children, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, you name it. It's that truth that will show them that they need Jesus and then they can reach out to him and be saved. It's that truth that will show Clark County and the city of Vancouver and the half a million people that God has entrusted us with. It's the only truth. And let me just say, we have got to stop self-help evangelizing. Here's what I mean. We've got to stop trying to make Christ church attractive as sort of a solution to people's problems. It's sort of the solution to the problems, right? We are not, and this is important, 
And listen to everything I say before you start getting upset. We are not here primarily to deal with your temper or your failing relationships or your financial issues. I'm not here primarily to tell you how the Bible can fix your problems. I'm telling you how the Bible can take you from death to life. That's the primary goal. We're here primarily to make disciples of Jesus Christ, ourselves as disciples and others as disciples. Because if you are not his, you're condemned to death and hell. Because that's what the Bible says. We're not trying to be attractive as entertainment. If we were, we would not have a fat guy over here trying to play guitar and playing the wrong notes. That is not entertaining. I mean, it's entertaining like comedy. That's not what we're here for. We're trying to teach all that Jesus commanded. Listen, you need to understand something. Back in the day when I was younger, we would do attractional stuff. My, my dad is a pastor. We used to do a thing called Yo Week, Youth Outreach. The word yo was cooler back in the 90s. Yo. But it worked. Had hundreds of kids there. People got saved. It was a great thing. And back then you could say, hey, do you want to come? There's going to be some games. We did like a hundred foot long banana split. Took me a long time to eat it all. Um, no. <laughs> what happened. Still trying to work it off. And people would come to that. Let me just tell you something. You're not beating Netflix now. You're not beating video games now. Back when I was a kid, doo, 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 doo. you know, it's a little Mario. Probably going to get a copyright thing for doing that. That's on the line. That's what we we're doing. Or Atari, I had an Atari. I won an Atari in a Bible contest. And, uh, you know, it, do, 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 it's this now it's just like fully immersive. Like people can sit, they can sit there in front of the computer for hours. They put a diaper on and just sit there. You think I'm kidding? Don't Google it. Look, people can just do it. For, no one could do that with Tech Mobile. You can't just stay there and play that for hours. Some of you are like, Tech Mobile? Yeah, amazing game. Super Bowl Tech Mobile is the better one. Um, but in any case, you can't do that. You play for a minute and you go outside and play. That, that's done. You're not going to be able to say, hey, come to my church because the music's great and the preaching's great. They're going to be like, I've got Netflix. I've got YouTube. I've got people who have spent massive amounts of time producing content for me. And there's so much of it that if I started right now, I could never stop watching until the end of my life. That's how much content is out there. Not very good, but there it is. We cannot do that kind of attractional model. It's either real and means something or it's not. It's either salvation and the rock in the storm of life or it's not. That's what we are. Don't bother trying to convince them that they're going to love it. They may or may not. The fact is, is that they need it. We can't take the easy way in evangelism by saying, hey, why don't you come to church? It'll be fun. Frankly, I got to be honest, I love you and I love to have fun, but that's not primarily why we're here. I'm not here to, so that you can have fun or that I can have fun. I do. I have fun. We joke. We laugh. It's a, we're jovial folks. But, but we're here talking about eternity, life and death. This is the real deal. I don't. And again, listen to everything I have to say before you start freaking out. I don't care about your health or your marriage or your finances or your social life nearly as much as I care about your eternal destiny. I do care about all those things. 
But if you come in here and you're like, I'm going through this, I'm going through that, I'm like, yeah, we're here for you. We want to support you. Those are all horrible things. We go through some terrible things in life. But at the end of the day, the question I need to answer is, are you saved? Because that's where hope and real joy come from. You're going to go through the other stuff, okay? Fallen world, much. Yeah. It's a mess, but your life can be full of the joy of the Lord of Jesus Christ if you'll surrender to his loving, gracious, glorious call to salvation. In order to do that, you have to know that you're condemned without him. Look, if, if, you, if the way you evangelize is telling people how good Jesus is and what he's done for your life, that's great. But if you don't include what he saved you from, and if you don't include the fact that that's also the state of the person you're talking to, they're just going to think it's your way of self-help. And their way is Pilates. <laughs> it's not happening. It's not happening. I mean, I'm just going to do the splits. No, I'm not. Gonna. I'd be preaching for a while because I'd never be getting up. Everybody's got their way of self-help. If you just go, hey, Jesus is my thing, that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants people to be like, oh, Jesus is your thing. And CrossFit is mine. Or hiking is mine. Love that one in the Northwest. That's where I commune with God. Get real. There's nothing in the scriptures that says, church is you on a mountain hiking in your Patagonia fleece. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is what's real. People have to know it's real. We need to repent of our lack of evangelism as a church, as a church at large. We need to start preaching the gospel to our friends and neighbors. I know God's effective when we do it. I know he is. And so the only answer I have for the fact that the church in general seems to be having real problems bringing people in and making disciples is that we're just not doing it because he's always faithful. He's always faithful. And I'm not saying that none of us are doing it. I'm just saying more. More. We've got to think about preaching the gospel to our friends and our neighbors and our families and our coworkers and the nations and anyone who will listen, even if they won't listen. The time is short, my brothers and sisters, and we have a job to do. This is our time. Do you know that this is your time? You weren't born a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago or, well, some of you, about a hundred years ago. <laughs> you weren't born at a different time. You were born now. This is your time. God will bring those he is calling into his kingdom. Look, that's happening, okay? Don't think that like what I'm saying is, look, if you don't do it, God doesn't know what he's going to do to bring these people to himself. That's not what I'm saying. God is faithful. But don't you want to be a part of it? Don't you want to be a good and faithful servant? Don't you want a passion? Don't you have the passion to see people come to Jesus when we cheer, when we baptize people over here? And we're like, yes, because we know what it means. Don't you want to do that? Time is short. Time is short. And this is our time. Esther, in the Old Testament, she's in the situation where uh, her people, the Jewish people, were at major risk. She'd been made wife of the king there. And uh, she was asked to go into the king and plead for her people. And it was like, I can't. If she goes into the king and he does not hold out his scepter to her, she's dead. She knows that. She is risking her life to go do it. But she did it. 
She did it because she did what God called her to do in the place where God had put her at the time that God had put her there. Listen to this, Esther 4.14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And, I, and that's true of people who Jesus is drawing to himself. He's not going to let them go because you were unfaithful or I was unfaithful. It'll come from another place, but, says here, you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Why are you where you are? Why do you know who you know? Why do you have the influence that you have? Why are you at the job where you are? Why do you live in the neighborhood where you live for such a time as this? God has put you in a place. You may not like the place where you are right now, but God knows and he has put people in your life and all of that is for such a time as this. Now is the time. Not next week. Not next year. You don't know whether you will be here next week or next year or whether the person you need to evangelize to will either. It is arrogance and ignorance to assume your time is unlimited. It's like people who say, I'll come to the Lord after I've done some good sinning. I don't think that you're in the mind, this heart space to come to the Lord, if that's where you are. I'll, I'll evangelize. I'm going to have a little more time next month when things free up. I'll call my sister. I'll call my brother. I'll call my dad. I'll call my mom. I'll call my coworker. I'll call my neighbor. Eventually. Look, I'm going to give you a few practical things. Let me tell you a few things. The people who need Jesus at your job or in your friend group or whatever are probably not wearing a t-shirt that says, I need Jesus, please tell me about him. <laughs> and if you wear a t-shirt that says, I know Jesus, ask me about him, they're probably not going to. You don't know who they are. But people are so broken right now. People are so sad right now. People are struggling, including believers who need your support. First, the household of God. But outside the church, people are so broken. They need it. They may or may not know that they need it, but they need it. Your job is to wake up the hypnotized. Have you ever seen a more hypnotized people than us? If you're not looking at this, you're looking at that. If you're not looking at that, you're looking at this. If you're not looking at that, you're probably going... Mouth breathing. They're lost. We have lost reality as a culture. And they need you. They need you. You need to snap them out of it. You need to snap them out of their hypnosis. So, what's the conversation look like? Well, we'll get into that in a minute. I just want you to understand something that Satan always overplays his hand. And in those moments, you have a time, a period of time, to make a strategical move for the Lord. But once those moments pass, that overplayed hand actually works. Let me give you an example. When I was a young man, homosexuality, um, same-sex uh, sexual relationships were considered by almost everyone to be not good. It wasn't just because it was in the Bible. It was understood to be the law of nature, a natural thing. So the so homosexuality was unnatural and not good. Everybody believed that. And I believe 2004, tons of states voted on the issue of same-sex marriage, and they all rejected it, including the one you're sitting in. 
this state that's as far down that road in every possible way as you can imagine, even Washington voted against it. By 2021, it is as normal as can be. You'll, the gruffest person who back in the day probably would have said unkind things is like, oh yeah, that's totally fine. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's there all about it. There was a time in there where Satan had overplayed his hand and gone too far and there was opportunity for people who might be thinking about the Lord to show them that, see, do you see what's happening to you? Do you see how you're being pulled by the world into something that you did not believe yesterday and now you do believe without good arguments and you have this opportunity for evangelism? You have that again now with a couple issues. I'm not going to go into all those. Maybe we'll do a contemplate session on one of these Monday nights and talk about them. But there are a number of issues right now where Satan has overplayed his hand and most people, regardless of what they may say publicly, are their, their hearts are churning within them because there are absolute, absolute nonsense, foolish things that are being said as if they were true. And people know that they're not true. And this is your opportunity. This is your opportunity for people whose hearts are like that. That's when you have the, they, people don't think very much. We talked about apathyism. When they start thinking, they start going, I, I don't know. That looks like a guy that's running faster than all the girls. I, I know that that's, they're saying that it's not, but I'm not crazy. There's something very guy-like here, right? And people are going, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that, right? You have the abortion issue, which is very interesting. I would like to do a whole thing on that, but I'm going to have to do that as a podcast, not as a sermon because there's a lot of legal stuff. It's complicated. There's so many things right now. You have an opportunity. But you got to have the conversation. Here's a couple easy ways to do it, okay? You go to work tomorrow. Somebody says, I love the pregnant pause where you're like, what? What do they say? <laughs> Somebody says, did you have a good weekend? Yes, I went to church. It was amazing. The people there are so caring and loving. I'm just so blessed that I get to be around people who understand salvation. Now, the person may look at you and go, whoa, I just wanted you to say yes. <laughs> and I'm so sorry that you're going to have to go through that. Deal with it. They ask you another day, hey, how was your night last night? Hey, I went to Life Group. This group of people who prays for me every week who I go and spend time with, who we're doing real life together, who we actually care about each other and love each other and help each other when we need help and do this kind of thing. And we study the word of God because the word of God is true. And they go, I just wanted you to say yes. And you go, well, you asked. Yes. As the world becomes more foolish, the Lord's truth still stands and people are looking for it. And I want you to remember something. The war you're fighting is the only one you can win. The war you're fighting is the only one you can win. Be careful what war you're fighting. If your first priority is something other than making disciples, you will choke out your effectiveness of making disciples because you're fighting some other war on some other battlefield. What's the war you're fighting? Be a people of passion as Christ's church, his body, his hands, his feet, and trust him to work 
as the Holy Spirit empowers you to be faithful. It's 11.15. I, I, I made a couple videos. They're like a minute long. They're, they're not exciting, so don't get like worked up here. It's just an example of a bad way of doing evangelism and a good way of doing evangelism, okay? By text message. And the idea, well, I'm going to let you watch them. Let's, let's do the bad one first. That should be the one that looks like Nacho Libre. Go ahead and let's play that. The second one, one of my points is, don't do evangelism by text. <laughs> but all it takes in this world is to say, I have been thinking about you. I've been missing you. I've been thinking about you. I care about you. I'd like to get together. And then when you get together, that's when you make the Amway pitch. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> when you get together, that's when you can start talking about the gospel. Face to face, real life with real people in the real world. Something that so many people are not experiencing right now. I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I'm asking you to do what the scripture calls you to do. You've been called to evangelize. You were saved because somebody else did. Other people can be saved because you did. Obviously, they, do, they get saved because of Jesus. But don't you want to be used? Don't, don't you want to be a church where every week more people are in these seats, more people are getting baptized, we have to go to multiple services because people are getting saved because this county is being changed? We got to get 500 churches of 1,000 in this county if we want to get everybody saved. That's a lot. Let's start with this one, getting just one more saved person, and then one more after that. Let's do what God's called us to do. Let's pray.